Well, a very good evening to you. My name's Chris, and I'm a member of the congregation here at St. John's, Danger Hill. Um, we've, just, we've just prayed through that song um, that God would help us hear his words and be changed as a result of it. So I won't add another prayer to that, but keep, keep that prayer in your mind as we come to his word now and think about um, the, the message of Christmas, the word became flesh. Now, it seems um, due to the advent of social media that there's a Christmas tradition that certainly if my family's experience is anything to go by, is on the wane. And that is the sending of the family Christmas letter. Do you know the one I mean? You know, you, 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 get, you get the card and you think, oh, maybe there's something in here, something exciting, maybe a voucher or something, you open it up. And actually it's just a letter from friends and family that you've either kept up with on Facebook anyway, and so you know everything that's gone on in their year, or you're not even friends with them on Facebook, and so why are they sending you a letter? But these letters go out, people still send these letters out. Um, do, do you know the ones I mean? They're, I mean, maybe my family has a bit of an inferiority complex, but to me, I open the letters, and they sound something like this. <clears throat> Child number one has just become the youngest Nobel laureate in history. My, uh, my singing hobby is taking me to perform at the last night of the proms at the Albert Hall. Yes, just a little hobby. And Jim, well, Jim's had a tough year. He's been really busy. He was promoted to global director of everything. Um, so he's been so busy, he's only been able to win three Ironman triathlons in the summer. Yeah. We're looking forward to hearing from you, though. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems, I mean, the most ambitious line in those kinds of letters is the one that says, you may recall from last year's letter. <laughs> no. At the minute, I'm struggling to put a face to the name. <laughs> so, you know, let's not be overly ambitious in our connections. Now, I've got to say, and I said, said this this morning, um, if you are one of those people who writes family Christmas letters, then God bless you and every strength to your arm. Um, Keep at it. Don't give up the dream. Genuinely, I mean that. Uh, after the sermon this morning, my wife was like, there might be some people who actually do that. So if that's you, then great. Yes, um, I look forward to receiving letters from other people who are the same. But the thing is, whether you write letters like that or not, this time of year is a great time of year to look back over the year that you've had and to think, what are the significant moments in my life? What are the significant events that have happened to me? What are the ups and downs? What has made a real difference to me? And those things are important. Think about them. List them. Write them out if you have to. Send them on if you really must. But think about what has been going on. John 1, 1 to 18 is a little bit like the Apostle John's Christmas letter. As he looks back over the events of his life, certainly, and thinks, this really needs to get out there. I need to tell people what has been going on. But the thing is, and I, I'm sorry to offend you if this is the case, unlike our Christmas letters, which have perhaps limited importance outside a very small circle, what John said is not limited in its importance to just his circle of family or friends. If you've if you followed the whole of John 1, but even just the bits that we read, what he's writing is of cosmic importance. And in fact, the little phrase that we're thinking about tonight, these four words represent the most significant reality in human history. The word became flesh. John there describes the entirety of the Christmas story. He is announcing the arrival of Jesus Christ. And it is because Jesus is the word who became flesh that he is the most significant person who ever lived. Listen to how one person put it. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman, he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, held an office, had a family. 
He never owned a house. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He had no credentials by himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he stands as the central figure of the human race. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of humanity on earth as has this one solitary life. The word became flesh and changed the world. Christmas is all about this central mystery, the incarnation. Carne is Latin for meat. This is literally the in-meatment of God. That is what, uh, what Christmas is all about. The word became flesh. God became a man. And nothing less than that is claimed. And you can start to think about how extraordinary that is just by what we've heard from John so far over the last few weeks. Who is the word? Well, verse 1 of chapter 1, he was in the beginning. He is God. Before time existed, he was with God. Tom taught us about the Trinity a few weeks ago. God is one being existing in three persons. God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then verse 3, through him, the word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The Word is the uncreated creator. The Word is the reason behind and the creative impulse for the entire universe. He is life and light. He is infinite in his being and wisdom and power and knowledge. He made everything and holds everything together. So you see, he's not just a bigger version of you and me. He is God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, the Word from the Father, and the claim of Christmas, the claim of Christianity at this time of year, all year really, but we think about it most here, is that he, that one, became a man. In the womb of the Virgin Mary, this infinite God, without giving up anything that it means to be God, became a baby, as human as you and me. Fully divine and fully human. God, who has no body, who has no limits, who has no weakness, stepped into the world with frail human feet. One of the big bishops of the early church, St. Augustine of Hippo, said this, the maker of man became man, that he, ruler of the stars, might be nourished at the breast. He was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy. He, the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. You can add together every brilliant thing humanity has ever achieved, and still, these four words remain the most extraordinary statement ever given breath or ink. The word became flesh. And because this is so important, we need to understand just what it's saying and why it matters. And so I thought a helpful way to think about this was to look at this statement through the lens, through the angle of actually two errors that have been made in history concerning the person of Jesus Christ. 
And we're going to think about those errors that can come in, thinking about who Jesus is, and then what we need to hold to in order to make sure we avoid the dangers. So the first thing that we need to remember, that we need to hold to, is it was the Word who became flesh. Well, why do I say we need to keep holding on to that? Well, one of the big errors right from the start of the early church and has cropped up ever since is that Jesus is just a man done good. He's just a man. At the start of his life, just a man. But he lived so brilliantly, so inspiringly, that God decided to kind of bestow a divine status upon him and adopt him almost as his own son, almost like a reward. This was known right at the start as something called the adoptionist heresy. They didn't call it a heresy themselves. That was the label that other people said, that's really wrong because that's not what we see in the Bible. But what the adoptionists believed was that Jesus was nothing but a man done good who achieved great things and then was given this status of being God's son. And as I said, that's come up time and time again. It's almost like people, people struggle with this claim that it was God himself who became a man. Well, why do we need to make a big deal about it? Why does John, why does the Bible make a big deal about Jesus being truly God? Surely it's important to say. Surely it's enough to say. Well, he lived a great life and left us a good example for us to follow. Well, it's true. It was a good life. He does leave a good example. But the problem is this. If Jesus is only a man and therefore only an example or a moral leader or religious guru, then Christmas, well, it's only just about good cheer and charity. The Christian life then becomes our performance as we imitate Jesus. He lived a great life by the power of his will and achieved adoption by God. Well, maybe we just do the same. And the thing is, we all have this temptation within us to prove ourselves worthy of God's favor and blessing. We like to think we can do it ourselves. And so it, it appeals to something in sinful human hearts to believe that Jesus is just a man done good. And maybe I can be the same. But the problem is that salvation by example is a salvation that's empty because our imitation will never be enough. Good cheer and charity, well, that's a Christmas message that I can receive and welcome without any disruption to my life. But this Christmas letter will not leave our egos intact. It was the word who became flesh because you and I are such a mess that only God can save us. We're caught up in the darkness of sin and the death of this fallen world, and so our only hope comes from out of town. It takes God stepping into our sinful mess. Only the one who is light himself can banish darkness. Only the one who is life himself can defeat the grave. Only God can save us and bring us home. So, when Christ's deity has been rejected, the fact that it was the word who became flesh, people can end up believing, well, we can make ourselves right with God too. And that's true of us, even if we've known the Christian message for many, many years. There's always a part of us that's itching to take the credit somehow or think, well, maybe it's something I've done. Maybe it's some great religious act I've performed or some moral deed I've done. God thinks that's okay and he's going to give me blessing and favor because of it. Now, it might be that we prefer sermons that tell us what to do rather than actually resting satisfied in hearing what God has done. 
Maybe it's that old classic, or maybe it's just an old classic for me, that thinking God's going to prefer me more because I've spent more time reading my Bible or praying. Well, when we do that, there are little seeds of this error in there that want to reject the scandal of grace. It was the Word who became flesh. It takes God to save us, and he does it all. Plus, there's something really appropriate about the fact that it was the Word, the Son of God, who saves us. Look at verses 12 and 13 of John 1. To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The salvation that Christianity offers says you can become a child of God. You can know God as your Father, while only God the Son can make us sons and daughters too. Only the word of the Father is the Father's perfect self-expression on earth. So when we forget this, and when we think good cheer and charity are Jesus' message, that Jesus is just a man done good, we are not going to be hearing the good news of the Christian faith. And notice how hard John makes it for us in our passage to make that mistake. We've already seen who the Word is, the uncreated creator. But John goes on in verse 14, He made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory, the glory of God dwelling with the people. Remember what we saw in Exodus 33 in our first reading, glory, divine goodness. These are only things said of the one true creator God. The fact that he is said to be full of grace and truth. I don't know if you caught in in Exodus 34 as it was being read, the Lord passed in front of Moses and sort of listed off some characteristics of who he is and what he is like and, and sort of little pairs of things that he said about himself. And one of them is that he is abounding in love and faithfulness. Well, actually, it's abounding in gracious love and faithfulness. And faithfulness is the same kind of word as truth. And right the way through the Old Testament, this description of God abounding in gracious love and faithfulness or truth carries on time and again. This is who God is described to be. And it really does seem like John is kind of picking up that echo and saying grace and truth, that God, will, well, he is here. And the language of dwelling, he it's the, the word that's used means literally to pitch a tent, to, to build a tent, as it were. And again, in the story of Exodus, the glorious presence of God that goes with the people accompanies them because it dwells in the tabernacle, in the tent that the people make. John is saying here, unmistakably, Jesus Christ is where God has pitched his tent John is saying this is him, the one true God who made heaven and earth, who moved heaven and earth to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. This God is here in this man. So then verse 15, it's no wonder that John the Baptist, it's a different John that's been spoken about now. John the Baptist was born earlier than Jesus. If you know your Christmas story well, he was on the scene earlier than Jesus. He was famous earlier than Jesus. And so he can say, yeah, although he comes after me, although Jesus comes after me in in, in terms of as a man he's after me, Nevertheless, he's superior to me because he was before me. As a man, he is after me, but as a person, he has been forever. He is the eternal Son of God. So, we need God to save us. We need God the Son to bring us home to the Father. 
It was the Word who became flesh. Second thing, we need to know that it was flesh that the Word became. What's this saying? Well, this means that the Word really became a man. It's not like he kind of stuck bits of human nature onto him just for a little while. The Word, who eternally exists as the Word, never stopped being the Word, completely entered human existence. He didn't kind of put a human nature on himself like a spacesuit. Like you've got like a body and then the eyes of the Word are looking out, but there's not actually any real contact with the world. He's not like Jesus was a hologram or a projection or one of those ghosts things that Jedis become when they die in Star Wars. It's not like he was a super being that flies down to Earth and takes on this new identity with thick-rimmed glasses, only to shed them and become someone completely different when the real work needs doing. No, the Word became really and fully human, body and soul. Well, why do we need to stress this? Well, an opposite error in the history of the church was to believe that God wanted really nothing to do with the messy details of human life. And one of the very earliest groups who believed this was a group called the Docetists. The Docetists, and their name is taken from the Greek word that means to seem or to appear, to look like. They were happy to say, yeah, Jesus is God, but they didn't like the idea of him actually becoming a man. And so they said he merely seemed to become a man. He appeared to become a man. He was like a phantom or a projection or a hologram. They didn't like the idea that God wanted to get involved with all the gritty details of human life. And so they kept him at a distance and said, well, our faith, well, it's all about the mind. It's all about the the non-material. It's just me and my relationship with God. Let's keep that separate from the details of everyday life. And there are ways that this can come out today among us too. People don't like the idea that God is interested in the, the mucky and murky details of fleshly life. And so they just pretend he's not. Now, maybe that's in saying that God doesn't care about the way we live and what we do with our bodies and time and and our stuff. No, we need to hear this passage and say it was flesh that the word became because he cares about every detail, every day, and every domain of our existence. For instance, a Christianity that's only for Sundays, for example, does not fit with the words becoming flesh. Or maybe we don't want God to get involved in every detail of human life because we're not prepared to put in the hard work of loving others. I'm spiritual but not religious is a great way of avoiding the claims of the church, of church community, of teaching and service. But true spirituality is physical. Choosing to be part of a family, a church family, the hard work of love. And so knowing that it was flesh that the word became correct us on these bad attitudes. But there's more that matters in the Son of God becoming matter. If the Son did not fully assume human existence, then he could not fully heal human existence. We're in such a mess that only God can save us, but our mess is a very human mess. And so he had to become a human to deal with it. He had to enter into every nook and cranny of human, of all that it means to be human, in order to cleanse and restore it. And if he didn't fully assume human nature, then he could not stand as a substitute. 
At every point in his life, Jesus lived for us and died for us. He was the obedient son we never were. He died the human death we deserve to die for saying no to God. It was flesh that the word became. And John's gospel shows us time and again that the full humanity of Jesus. Jesus slept. Jesus ate. Jesus wept. Jesus laughed. Jesus died. And after the resurrection, the climax of resurrection, what do we see? Jesus is handing out tuna sandwiches on the beach for breakfast. I said this morning, and a few people grimaced, but as I was growing up, tuna and coleslaw sandwiches were my daily breakfast. So to hear that the resurrected Jesus thinks this is a great breakfast meal, well, that was music to my ears, and I still look back in pride on those days. Since I've been married, they're no longer allowed. But, but... Jesus hands out tuna sandwiches for breakfast. He really is human. The word did not just seem to enter human existence. He took it into every part of his person. The word became flesh. Two natures, divine and human, united in one person, the eternal son of God. Verse 18, the invisible God, the God whom no one can see because he's infinite and we can't see his divine essence because he's pure and holy and we're not and therefore we couldn't bear to see him. This invisible God gives himself a human face and makes himself known in a unique way. You see, what the disciples saw in front of them was a man, but the one whom they saw was the eternal son of God, the creator as a creature. So you can see now why John seems to think, why Christians have thought throughout the centuries, this is the most significant statement ever made. Despite a wretched list of failures, the history of humanity contains massive achievements. Medicine, technology, law, democracy, the arts, Shakespeare's plays, Mozart's music, Picasso's paintings. I couldn't think of any artists this morning at that point. I'm glad I thought of one now. I thought I'd share, share that with you. Picasso's paintings. Splitting the atom, discovering antibiotics, walking on the moon. Tiny acts of charity every day from great, um, sorry, two grand gestures of humane sacrifice. These are all brilliant things. These are all amazing things. We should be grateful for them and desire them more and more. And still, if you were to add each one on top of another on the scales of significance in human history, they would still find themselves outweighed on the other side by this little phrase. The word became flesh. John didn't just write his Christmas letter to give us an update, but he wrote it so that you and I would believe in this Jesus and by believing receive eternal life. There is nothing more significant that has happened in history. And so therefore there is nothing more significant in your life than your response to it. And for those of us who have believed, Well, often we lament the way in which British culture has sort of downplayed the significance of of, uh, the true significance of Christmas in our commercial holiday season. But actually, so easily, I think we allow the moments of our life to gain much greater significance in our eyes than this. And so as you mentally compose your 2018 Christmas letter, or really compose it, I'm fine with that. If you want to write a Christmas letter, that's great. Whatever you're doing, as you think back over 2018, think what has been of great significance in my life. Maybe there's been moments of huge accomplishment and hard work, of great joy. Maybe there's been moments of huge frustration, of relationships that haven't worked, of medical reports that haven't had the good news you needed. Maybe you've watched loved ones be sick or dying. 
Those moments really matter. They really are significant. But what I want to say is put them up against this. Measure them against this reality. Maybe as we look back over 2018, we need our pride puncturing, or perhaps we need to be pulled out from a pit. Either way, the significance of this statement, that the word became flesh, that God became a man and came to you and became a man for you, well, that changes everything. Secondly, and much more briefly, receiving grace and seeing glory. Verse 16 From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. From the fullness of his grace, he is the infinite God. (laughs) You don't get more full than that. And John is saying every blessing you could possibly desire here is found in Jesus Christ. And the blessings of life and salvation were there for God's people in the Old Testament. Promises of a land, a family, a future, a God who loved them as his own children. And actually, that was always the heart of the promise. Israel was God's own son. To them belonged the adoption. The later prophecies of the Old Testament said, in the coming of the Messiah, people who have rebelled against God, who deserve his judgment and exile, will get to be called children of the living God. This is light in the darkness, life instead of death. And in fact, that's what this phrase, one blessing after another, means. Because he goes on to say, for, he's explaining, verse 16, for, what I mean by that was the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There was grace given in the law of Moses, grace um, of pictures of this salvation, but they pointed to a greater grace. That was the blessing that came after another the fullness of grace and favor that comes into being in Jesus Christ. You see, the law was a a gracious gift given by God. But Jesus Christ is the gracious gift of God himself. And in him, every blessing is to be found. Most of all, the blessing of being able to call God our Father too. And this is the heart of human desire. I don't know what kind of things you're desiring this Christmas, but I imagine they involve things like happiness and joy, satisfaction, and security. Those are great desires to have. They were made along with us because we were made to enjoy God as our Father, to be children of God. Well, the message of John is that in Jesus, we have the redemption and the revelation needed to become children. Verse 18, no one has seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, literally, from the Father's bosom, intimately one with the Father in all eternity. He, the Son, was sent and took flesh to show us the God who desires to make us his children. Apart from Jesus, we cannot know God as our Father, but in him the impossible is made possible. But the thing is, not everyone sees it that clearly. And as the story of John progresses, it seems that despite the signs Jesus does, no one is picking up on the glory. I remember a conversation I had um, when I was, um, I used to work for a church in Manchester, and and we ran a a course called Christianity Explored for people who are interested in finding out more about Jesus. And I was chatting with this guy on the course who wasn't a Christian, 
And we were talking about the idea that Jesus is God in the flesh. And he said, well, he didn't make it very obvious, did he? Like I'd have expected if if he was to come in the flesh, he'd have flown up in the air and set off fireworks with big arrows pointing at him, saying, here I am, God in the flesh, look at me. And And he kind of said, well, didn't he fail? Because loads of people rejected him. And I said, well, that's kind of the point, actually. Things are more than they seem. If we are going to demand to see Jesus' glory, we need to see it on his terms, not on our own. Otherwise, we won't get him at all. John's gospel is full of rejection, full of opposition, full of people who did not see where the signs pointed, who refused to see Jesus' glory, full of grace and truth. Because darkness hates light. Death refuses life. Lies oppose truth. And that's a running theme in John. Jesus is glorious, he's full of grace and truth, but the world didn't want to hear it. And the opposition mounts and mounts until the world cannot stand to hear the truth any longer. And Jesus finds himself in front of Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And Pilate looks into the eyes of truth incarnate, the word made flesh. And yet, even though he is staring truth in the face, he can say with contempt on his face and a sneer in his voice, what is truth? As it stared him in the eyes. Eyes of faith are needed to see the glory of Jesus because he did not come in the glory that the world expects. At Christmas time, it's especially hard, I think, to see that. We're coddled by the sparkle and warmth of all that goes on at Christmas, and we forget that the glory of Jesus Christ is not seen in the way that the world expects. We have seen his glory, John says, that glory that the Old Testament promised, grace and truth, the lifting up of God so that all are drawn to him. But John continues, and you actually realize that for Jesus, glory is in shame. Victory is in defeat. Life is in death. To win victory, God the Son had to die for our sin under God's curse. Yes, he is glorious in John's gospel, but his glory in being lifted up is being lifted up on the cross. What kind of glory is that? An unbelieving world can't get this. Ever since he walked on earth and ever since, people have rubbished the claim that God would come and die a human death for his people. I don't know if you're here and you you like the books by Dan Brown, um, The Da Vinci Code particularly, Um, whatever you may think of his storytelling. Apparently I was a bit harsh on it this morning. I'm not a big fan. Um, But certainly, whatever you think of his storytelling, he combines it with a woefully poor grasp of things like facts and history. So, for instance, in The Da Vinci Code, he claims that the divinity of Christ, the very thing we've been looking at in this whole sermon, was just invented in the 4th century by the Emperor Constantine. Now, you can go to every page of the New Testament and find there um, certainly an allusion to, an assumption of, and pretty much all the way through, a clear assertion that Jesus Christ is nothing less than God in the flesh. But even if you were to put the Bible aside, I don't advise you do, but even if you were, you could look at various people right from the very earliest church who believed Jesus is God in the flesh. Listen to the words of one guy, a bishop from Sardis called Melito, Mid-2nd century he wrote this, so 150, 170 years before Constantine came on the scene. He is beautifully capturing that the glory of God in Jesus Christ is actually the glory of the cross. He who hung the earth in place is hung. He who made the world fast 
is made fast. He who fixed all things in place is fixed in place. The sovereign is insulted. God is murdered. We have seen his glory, John says in verse 14. Well, Jesus' glory has always been known to Christians, first and foremost, to be not like the sparkle and warmth of a Christmas tree, but the glory of another tree altogether. As Jesus died on the cross, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit were glorified in victory, but we need the eyes of faith to see it. And I pray that this Christmas time you would have those eyes of faith. You would see that this really is the most glorious thing you've ever heard or seen. But to see it, we need faith to believe that this is how God incarnate needed to save us. And actually the hint is right there in our little phrase. The word became flesh. Later on in John's gospel, flesh is used explicitly to speak of sacrifice. The word became flesh so that he had flesh to offer in our place to satisfy the judgment of God. So, enjoy your Christmas. Enjoy your letter writing. Live the dream. My prayer is that you will have fresh joy in the significance of what it means to welcome the birth of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And because of that, All of us who believe in him will one day dwell with the living God where pain and sorrow have ceased and we will enjoy him for eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you sent your son to this world so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. I pray that we will see once again the significance of the fact that the word became flesh. Help us to receive him as God, to see his salvation as a man, to believe and rejoice and put everything else in perspective. Father, be with us this Christmas. May we see the glory of Jesus Christ, whether it's for the first time or the 50th. May we rejoice that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Amen.